This week, we're continuing in our series within a series. As you know, if you've been with us throughout the summer, we have been looking at the book of Romans, considering how the book of Romans might enlighten us to the way that we can be the church, particularly in times that have adversity and trouble. Last week, Tom Toole and I started a sermon series within the series called Don't Forget talking about the things that we absolutely want to remember, that God wants us to remember as we continue in our journey of faith as Christians and as we long and put our steps behind becoming closer to God. Last week, we talked about not forgetting that we need God. And this week, we are talking about not forgetting, don't forget, my friends, that God takes everything and purposes it for good. I invite you to join me in listening to our scripture for today. It comes from Romans 8, verses 18 through 30. Listen with me for the word of the Lord. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through the wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Will you bow with us for a word of prayer before we hear the sermon today? Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, this is not an easy scripture to preach. It's not an easy scripture to hear. So we pray, O oh God, that you would pour through Jessica and me the gift of preaching, that these words would not simply be our human words or human opinions, but by a miracle of your grace, these words might become your living word to us. And we pray that every child, teenager, and adult who hears them would be transformed by them so that we might become the people, and the followers of Jesus Christ that you want us to become. 
To that end, may these words really be your word, O God, and we know they will be, for we pray with anticipation and boldness in the strong name of Jesus, the risen and the reigning Christ. Amen. I wish it was possible for me to take a socially distanced walk or have a socially distanced cup of coffee with every one of you because I'd like you to press rewind on your mind. I'd like you to go back through your life. I'd like you to tell me your hopes, your dreams, your expectations, what you wanted out of life as you thought about career and family and where you wanted to live and what you wanted to do and be. And and then I'd love to ask you this question. Has there ever been a time in your life when plan A did not work out and you had to go to plan B? I was teaching a class on the will of God one time and I asked this question, have you ever had to go to plan B? And a woman stood up right in the middle of the class and said, plan B, I'm on plan G, H, and I, and I'm only 30, she said. In the old Peanuts comic strip, Charlie Brown and Lucy are having a discussion about the meaning of life. And Lucy says to Charlie Brown, you know, Charlie Brown, life is like a deck chair. Some people like to put their deck chairs so they can see where they've been. Some like to put their deck chairs where they can see where they are now. Some like to put their deck chairs so they can see where they're going in the future. Where do you like to put your deck chair, Charlie Brown? And Charlie Brown sighs and says, I can't even get my deck chair unfolded. (laughs) Is there anybody here whose life just hasn't unfolded as you thought it would Plan A didn't work out exactly the way you thought, and you had to go to plan B, or in some cases, you had to go to plan G, H, and I, but you're always making other plans. You know, this COVID-19 has not been easy for any of us, and we've had to put plans on hold and cancel plans and postpone plans. Suzanne and I are celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary this summer. By the way, Suzanne was four years old when I married her. I just wanted to get that in. (laughs) But 50 years old, 50 years of marriage is a wonderful thing. And we were planning a tremendous trip to Switzerland and France. And we'd never been to either of those countries and wanted to go. And in COVID-19, we had to put all of that on hold and postpone it till another time. And who knows when we'll be able to go back there. But we've had to go to plan B and beyond. And our grandson, Nathan, is going to be a senior at Duke University. He's so excited about his senior year of college, and he's done so well and has some wonderful courses planned and some wonderful activities. And he just got a note in the mail just this week, an email that, that said that no juniors or seniors will be taking any classes on campus. There won't be any housing on campus available to them. So he's got to do everything online, which he wasn't shocked about that, but now he's got to go to plan B. Does he stay at home and take courses, or, or does he get an apartment in Durham, North Carolina and take courses? What's he going to do? He's got to go to plan B or C, and, and then I fear, feel for Suzanne's and my dear friend Julie, who, Julie's in her mid-50s, and her parents are about 80, and her, their last child is, is still in high school, but three of their kids have gone on to college or graduate school. Well... Julie and her husband were looking forward to kind of the empty nest syndrome, being able to kind of do some more things and travel some more. And then, then COVID-19 hit, and, and all those plans got put on hold, and all the kids who were in college came home to live with them. So now, instead of cooking for three, Julie's cooking for six. And, and that's not really that big a deal, but it's just that her husband's a physician, and every morning they've got to go through this disinfecting pro- protocol, and every evening a disinfecting protocol. And 
And that ties up a lot of Julie's time with getting everything ready for her husband to go to be a physician at a prominent hospital. And then her parents, who in their early 80s, her mom now has dementia, which has now gone into full-blown Alzheimer's. And they're trying to sell their home in another state and live near Julie and her husband and family which is a great thing, except Julie went to be with her dad and mom to try to sort through all their stuff, and they're almost 60 years of marriage, and, and Julie realizes her mom can't do it anymore. She doesn't have the mind. She doesn't remember things, and she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't remember where she put things, and, and so Julie realizes she can't do it anymore. So not only are there all these changes, these plan Bs and Cs and Ds, but but Julie now has to deal with the grief of the loss of a mom who is no longer the mom she knew. And this is emotional for Julie. And so she said to her dad, I'll take mom home with me for a week or two while you pack up the stuff and sell the home and all that. Well, a week or two has now turned into a month or two, and now it's well beyond two months. And they're trying to get her mom into a care facility for Alzheimer's people. And, and that's put on hold. And don't you see Julie Poor Julie is not only in plan B, she's plan G, H, and I, and beyond. You know, John Lennon is quite right when he said, life is what happens to us when we're making other plans. And I love the saying that if you want to make God laugh, just tell God your plans. You know, if ever there was someone who knew about plan B, if ever there was a biblical character who knew about plan B, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul was intimately familiar with what it felt like to go from plan A to plan B and then on to plan C and to plan D. And with each new plan that Paul embarked upon, he encountered circumstances and situations that changed the course of his life. Circumstances, circumstances and situations that he would have never really even wanted for himself, that he wouldn't have wanted for anybody let alone for himself. Paul was born in the city of Tarsus. It was a bustling trade center in the Mediterranean coast with a renowned university. He was a city boy who learned from the greatest teacher. Although he, even though he was learning from the greatest Jewish teacher, he never set out to be a rabbi. Instead, he was a trained artisan. He was trained in leather goods and in tent making. Sometimes you wonder if that initial plan A was for him to live a quiet life, a simple one, a good one, where he was an artisan, maybe with a family, maybe something that looked more similar to what he grew up in, being in a good Jewish family. But then the next time that we meet Paul, he is standing outside on the edge watching the stoning of Stephen. We don't know exactly how he got himself there, but we know that all of a sudden that plan A became a plan B. And he found purpose and meaning in persecuting those Hellenized Christians, the Greek-speaking Christians, who were going against what he believed to be the true Jewish faith, the law of God. He traveled to and from Damascus, persecuting Christians. Paul wanted to be the most faithful one. He wanted to be the best. He truly wanted to be the Pharisee of all Pharisees. That was plan B. But then Jesus shows up and literally knocks him off his horse, blinds him with the light, and made him rely upon the kind of person that he was persecuting in order to get his sight back. 
He could have never imagined this supernatural happening happening to anyone, let alone happening to him. Furthermore, he never wanted it to happen to him. Paul was certain that he was living a life that was glorifying and uh, honoring to that God that he was serving. Why in the world would God ever deter him from a path that Paul was certain was a righteous one? This time around, Paul got an answer. Jesus told him that he was blinded and knocked off of his horse so that he would stop persecuting Christians so that instead he would go and share the good news with every person that he encountered. So there goes plan B right out the window. And here we go, plan C. In plan C, he dedicates himself to the community of believers, to the Christ followers. He met with other apostles in Jerusalem. He started little communities of worshipers all throughout the area. One missionary journey turned into two, turned into three. Paul expanded the church in each city that he landed, living with the new believers and nurturing their developing faith. Until he was arrested. There goes plan C. He was arrested and stationary for two years. Arrested after having turned himself in in order to escape a mob that was trying to kill him. This was never a plan that he would have decided for himself. And what was the purpose? The first time that he was deterred from doing what he believed and knew to be faithful work when he was traveling to Damascus and persecuting Christians The first time that he was knocked off course, he got an answer. Where was the answer this time? The answer never came. This time, he was stopped again from doing what he knew he was called to do. And for what? Plan D. It's funny, given all of these switches in his patterns, you would think that Paul would experience some of the things that we feel when our plans switch. And we know, no doubt that he did. No doubt he had his frustrations. But one of the things that's consistent when we read Paul's letters is hearing him talk about this unwavering faith and hope in what he does not see. The faith and hope and the knowledge that God was using absolutely every iteration of his life for a good purpose. Paul always believed that God was doing a good work in him, no matter what the plan. And God was at work in Paul's life, no matter what. Paul could feel it. He could sense it. He believed it with all of his heart. In fact, out of all these plan A's and B's and C's and D's that Jessica just talked about so beautifully in Paul's life, Paul learned an important spiritual lesson that God doesn't want any of us to ever forget. And here's the lesson. God works all things together for good no matter what. In other words, in God's economy, nothing is ever wasted. All of the good things and the bad things and the disappointing things and the suffering that happens in our life, it's all purposeful. Now, I don't mean, and Paul doesn't mean, that God causes everything to happen that happens. But Paul was teaching, and I believe it with all my heart, and Jessica believes that that God can work through anything 
to accomplish God's greater purpose. God can work all things together for good. But what Paul realized is you don't always see that every day. It's only when you look in the rearview mirror that you begin to see what God may be up to. And as Paul looked back over the plan A's and B's and C's and D's in his life, he said, oh, so maybe God is at work in my life. And he started to see what God was up to. The great 19th century Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard says, we live our lives forward, but we understand them looking back. And Alexander Graham Bell, the great inventor and scientist, said, when one door closes, God opens another door. But we look so long and regretfully at the door that was closed that we don't even see the door that is open to us. See, Paul started to see these open doors and closed doors with the eyes of faith. And the more he got to know Jesus Christ and the more he gave himself over to Jesus Christ, the more he put his weight down in Jesus Christ and the more he trusted Jesus and the more he realized God is working all this together for good. In fact, Paul even began to believe that when he was arrested and when he was shipwrecked and when he was beaten, actually God used even these things together for good. In fact, had it not been that Paul had been arrested, he would never have had the opportunity to share his faith with a jailer and with a magistrate and with the emperor. You see, this became a platform for Paul to be able to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul internalized this incredible good news that even amid suffering, that God's in God's economy, nothing is ever wasted. God can work all things together for good. Paul believed it. He internalized it. But can I be honest with you today? Sometimes I think I want, and maybe you want, the easy road of discipleship, not the hard road. Sometimes, I hate to say it, but I just really like God to give me plan A, and I want to skip plan B, C, and D. And, and sometimes, maybe you do it too, we run away from God in the hard times. When adversity comes, sometimes, is there anybody listening to this who sometimes runs away from God when times get really tough? C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century apologist and author, the great Oxford scholar said, adversity is the raw material of the Christian life. Suffering is a classroom in which we learn the greatest spiritual lessons of our life, Lewis said. But frankly, I'd rather skip that class. <laughs> I'd rather not take that class in suffering. But Lewis said, if you can stick with God, Amid the adversity, if you can stick with God amid the suffering, that's where you meet the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And when you realize you're not on the face of the earth to make money, we're not on the face of the earth just to have a career and to be successful, we're on the face of the earth to learn how to trust God and know God and love God and serve God. And God is working all things together for good and see, the apostle Paul realized it was out of the pain of the cross that God brought the redemption of the world. In his book, Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our conscience. But God shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It was out of the pain of the cross excrucis out of the cross that God saved the world. 
So when you and I go through things that are excruciating, we get the pain out of the cross, but we also get the redemption out of the cross. In other words, Jesus Christ is with us in our pain, and God can work that pain together for good in a mysterious way that we totally don't understand in this life. But Paul so internalized this truth that God was working all things together for good that not only did he not want anybody to forget it, but he kept mentioning it in his teachings over and over again, not only in Romans 8, but, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, which all of us know, we hear it at weddings and we hear it other places. But Paul was reflecting on how God works all things together for good and how in eternity we're going to understand that. So in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I'll understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So what I believe Paul is saying is the first words we're going to say in heaven are, aha, so that's what God was up to. As we see through our life and the life of all the world, how God has been at work in a way that will inspire us to awe and wonder and praise of God. This is a very hopeful part of the message. But frankly, it's one thing to preach about this. It's one thing to talk about it. But Jessica, isn't it right that it's quite another matter to try to live it out? Isn't it one that we'd rather not live out? I mean, it is. It's difficult. It's the truth that being able to talk about these nice platitudes of how God is always going to be present, God's always going to turn it for good. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it. It's one thing to say that God is going to be present through you in the darkest times of your life. It's another thing to wake up into the day that just disappoints you over and over again, or to wander into a situation that presents you with something that you can never even imagine in your nightmares, or to trudge through week after week of uncertainty and confusion like many of us have during this pandemic. If God works all things for good, then that means that God works joyful, hopeful, and lovely things for good. And it also means that God works stressful and disconcerting and painful situations for good. But that doesn't save us from experiencing stressful and disconcerting and painful things. It just gives those things a purpose an eternal purpose, an eternal purpose that assures us over and over again that the stress and the pain and the anger are not going to be the thing that define our story, that our story will not be defined by darkness, but that our story will be defined by light. Hmm. In these times when we experience grief and hurt and weakness that drive us to our knees in front of God in prayer, our scripture reminds us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans, and the one who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the will of God. I have to tell you, there's a lot of things that I read in Scripture that I don't fully get the first time around, but this time, there's something in this that just echoes in my gut. 
When my good friend died at the age of 26, when a mentor of mine was diagnosed with a terminal debilitating illness, when my husband lost his job and I had two small children at home, I didn't have well-articulated prayers to offer during those times. I didn't craft a beautiful liturgy. During those times, the prayers that I offered into God's hands were conveyed through sobs as I stood next to a casket. They were conveyed through exasperation as I encountered news upon news that I couldn't control. They were expressed through rage as I grumbled and mumbled into moving boxes. A pastor on Twitter just this last week posted that sometimes four-letter words are the only prayers that he can manage to utter. But he knew beyond a doubt that God would still accept them. I can really sympathize with that. Maybe you can too. When we are at our lowest points, weakened by grief and by hurt, that is when the Spirit intercedes for us in wordless groans. Richard Rohr, he's a Franciscan friar. He's based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he leads the Center of Contemplation. He's a popular author and speaker, and he tells a story about being at a lecture, listening to a scientist who was also a Jewish rabbi. And that Jewish rabbi tells him about a four-letter word, although a little different than the four-letter words that I might mutter under my breath. The rabbi was speaking about God's name, Yahweh, and about how God's name is written only with consonants, Y-H-W-H, and with no vowels. Faithful believers, the rabbi told them, were expected to know where the vowels were when they were speaking the divine name. And the rabbi points out that when the divine name is spoken correctly, it does not allow us to use our tongue or to close our lips. The rabbi highlighted how the sound of God's name is almost identical to the sound and motion of us breathing. I want you to try it with me. Yahweh. Yahweh. Richard Rohr talks about how as the rabbi breathed several times, breathed God's name as a prayer into the microphone, that this auditorium filled with PhDs were audibly sobbing. Rohr says that he tells this story about the rabbi's words as often as he possibly can because it has been his experience that learning to pray God's name in this way could completely transform a person's life. And he says how it transformed his life. It transformed the act of praying from an act of thinking into a corporal reality of what it is to be human. He talks about how it changed praying from an act of reciting carefully crafted words and poems, beautiful as they may be, but still recited into sighs and groans. 
It caused him to see that the first word that we ever speak when we take our first breath out of the womb is God's name. And that the last breath that we take on our deathbed will be speaking God's name. Friends, the spirit intercedes for us in praying God's name each and every moment that we breathe, whether we are shouting in joy, whether we are crying in pain, whether we are screaming in rage, the spirit makes every breath a prayer. So true. So what is the purpose of prayer? Is the purpose of prayer to get what we want? Is the purpose of prayer to change God's mind so God will give us only good things? Is the purpose of prayer for God to give us our plan A? I actually believe the purpose of prayer is to get to know God, is to speak to God and to listen to God. The purpose of prayer is not to change God's mind, but to receive God's mind. I got a glimpse of this truth some years ago when I was painting our house with my father. Suzanne and I and our two boys lived in the house and my dad and I were gonna be painting the house and I should say to be accurate, my dad painted the house and I assisted my dad in painting the house. He was terrific at it and I was a novice at it. But one day we were up on the ladders and we were sanding and we were kind of scraping the house and it was like a shade was pulled. And my dad opened up his life to me. And we started to talk, not just as a father and a son, but but as two human beings. And my dad let me into some of the secrets of his life. And, And he told me, he kind of pressed rewind on his mind and went back to the plan A's of his life and how sometimes they didn't work out and he had to go to plan B and C and D and G and H and I and beyond. But but through it all, he could see God at work in his life and in my life, the life of my mother and the life of our, our children, Ryan and Toby. And my dad had this wonderful view of life. But as I was watching my dad and he told me about finances and decisions he made and his plans and dreams and hopes, what I realized working with him scraping the house was I just loved being with my dad. I didn't need anything from him. I really didn't want to ask him for anything. I, I just loved being with him. I didn't need him to give me money or I didn't need him to buy me a house or I didn't need him to buy me a car. Now, I might have liked a car actually, but no, actually I didn't want anything from him. I just wanted to get to know my dad and the more time I spent with him, the more I realized that my dad loved me more than he loved himself. My dad had plans for me and for his wife, my mom, and our grandsons, his grandsons, Ryan and Toby, than than I ever imagined. And suddenly it made sense to me. We always think we want to believe in God so that God will give us these great things, this plan A. And what I realized is the joy of being alive is just getting to know God for God. Not getting things from God, but but getting to know God for we're on the face of the earth to get to know God and to love God and to trust God and to serve God. In just a moment after this message ends, you're going to hear a solo by Jennifer Miller. She's a gifted soloist in our choir. But don't get a cup of coffee during the solo. Don't get up. Just just lean forward. Lean into it. 
Because I'm telling you, this solo embodies this sermon. The solo is titled, More Than Anything. And what she's talking about is loving God more than getting things from God. And what she says in there is, help me to want the healer more than the healing. Help me to want the savior more than the saving. Help me to want the giver more than the giving. Help me to want Jesus more than anything. Do you want, do do I want, does Jessica want Jesus more than anything, more than we want to get things from God? Do we want God for God's self? See, when we get to know God and learn God's ways and God's character, we realize God loves us more than we could ever imagine. God's got greater things for San Marino Church and for each of us individually than we could ever imagine. God is working all things together for good, but we learn that when we get to know God. So... What if we could take that socially distanced walk or have that socially distanced cup of coffee? Have you learned, have I learned that God works all things together for good? I just close with this thought that that some years ago I was sitting in a beautiful spot with eight pastors. It was on the top of Mount Arbel looking over the Sea of Galilee. It was an exquisite setting and And these eight preachers and I were sitting there. They were in a group that I was leading, and we were going to Israel and touring Israel, having a wonderful time. But during the course of these two weeks together, I'd asked every pastor to to tell the story of his life or her life and to go back and press rewind in their mind and go back to all their plan A's and tell us how plan A and B and C and D worked out and how they were led to the church and the setting they're in today. And, And Barb was her turn on top of Mount Arbel in this gorgeous setting, and I'll never forget this. She stood up and she started to tell us her story. And she said, now this story, I got to tell you, is an R-rated life story. And it really was kind of R-rated. I won't go into all the details, but just suffice it to say that although Barb is a pastor today of a thriving church, she grew up in a home where she was abused in any way you could imagine abuse. She was an alcoholic at a young age. She married at a young age. She had a child at the age of 19. She was a drug addict in her 20s. She got arrested and put in the slammer, as she called it, for selling drugs in her 20s. She was a terrible mom. She was failing at life. She was failing at business. At the age of 34 years of age, she finally decided she was condemned. She was condemned by the church. She was condemned by God. She was condemning herself. She was condemned by her parents. Everybody condemned her, and she finally drove to a parking lot of a shopping center, and she was going to take her life. A Salvation Army truck drove into that shopping center parking lot and Barb looked at the trucks and what it said on the side and the verse of scripture was Romans 8 verse 1 there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and Barb started to sob and what she found herself saying was thank you God for finding me Well, for the next six years, Barb was a professing Christian. She raised her 15-year-old daughter, who then grew up to be 21 over the six years. She raised her in the church, and they were both believers, and they became really excited believers. And 
Barb became very excited about the Christian faith. And during that time, she became a good mom and she, she got a good job. And she met a good man, a Christian man, and she married him. And at the age of 40, Barb said to her husband one day, you know, I'd like to start a church, a, a community of believers, a beloved community where, where drug addicts and alcoholics and, and former drug addicts and former alcoholics and recovering alcoholics and family members could gather with no judgment, no guilt, and learn that there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And we could help one another to get well. And her husband said, I'm behind you 100%. So Barb went to a theological seminary at the age of 40, graduated at 43 or 44 years of age. She started this church. And it's a church for recovering addicts and recovering alcoholics and for people in 12-step programs who are broken people and know they're broken. And, and just fast forward, Barb asked me to preach in that church. And when I preached in that church, I'm telling you, it was an alive, exciting place. I mean, I mean, I just started my sermon by just saying, God loves you. And they all applauded. I said, man, if I knew this, I'd have preached in this church years ago. And they laughed. And during the message and during the service, they laughed and they cried and they prayed for one another. It was the most authentic, real, earthy, joyful church I've ever been in. And after the service, they stayed another hour, hour and a half, and they talked together, had coffee together, prayed together, laughed together, cried together, talked together. And I said to one man, why do you stay so long after the worship service? And here's what he said. I just want to stay in the atmosphere. I don't want to leave the atmosphere. Because this, to me, is what life is all about. And when Barb sat on that Mount Arbel and she told us her story, we were all in tears practically, and she was in tears. And then she said, you know, as I look back over my plan A and B and G, H, and I and beyond in my life, what I realize is God works all things together for good. And who better to minister to these broken people than Barb, who knew what brokenness was all about? And I could see the glimpse in her life, as maybe you can see in yours and I can see in mine, that no matter what happens to us in God's economy, life is never wasted. Nothing's ever wasted. And God can work all things together for good. Now that's something. God doesn't want any of us to ever forget. Barb remembered it. Will we? Amen.